Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille. Of the many dark pages in the book of Canadian history, the use of the War Measures Act is surely one of the most somber. The War Measures Act was a federal law that essentially allowed the government of Canada to do what it wished. It gave it the right to suspend civil rights, to essentially suspend the due process of law, and to suppress dissent. To shed light on the use and impact of this extraordinary instrument, the Canadian Museum of History in Getzineau has assembled a remarkable collection of documents and artifacts for a new exhibit entitled Lost Liberties, the War Measures Act, which runs from December 17, 2021 to September 5, 2022. To talk about the exhibit, I'm very happy to host for the third time Dr. Xavier Gilina. He is the Curator of Political History at the Canadian Museum of History. Dr. Gilina is the author of La Droite Intellectuelle et la Révolution Tranquille and co-editor of Duplessis, Son Milieu, Son Époque, as well as two volumes of René Lévesque's political commentary between 1966 and 1970. It's entitled Chronique Politique de René Lévesque. We reached Dr. Gilina by phone at his office in Gatineau, Quebec. Xavier, it's a pleasure to welcome you again to Witness to Yesterday. Good day, Patrice. I'm very honored to be reinvited. witness to yesterday for this episode what happened on august 22nd 1914 it's the day where a very momentous act was sanctioned by parliament the title of the act is quite innocuous it says uh, it's officially called an act to confer certain powers upon the governor in council and to amend the immigration act so on the surface, there isn't much to it, but it is the quite famous War Measures Act, adopted in, in August 1914 and on our legal books up to 1988. Now, why was this law drafted and what powers did it give the government of Canada? Essentially, it was dra drafted in the extremely early days of the First World War, when conditions were unsettled and, of course, completely unplanned and unprepared. Uh, the government, the federal government, took its inspiration from the Defense of the Realm Act in the United Kingdom. It needed or thought it needed an all-encompassing or omnibus sort of law to prevent for all eventualities and to set aside the normal due process of civil liberties in order to cope with uh, every imminent and unforeseen trouble. So essentially, it's sort of a key that allows the government to do legally whatever it pleases. It is a remarkable, a remarkable act, Xavier. I mean, this is the, the Borden government. The Attorney General, of course, the Minister of Justice was Arthur Meehan, a man who will continue to shape Canadian history for 25 years after that. The war had barely started. Canada was at war, but it wasn't really at war, was it? And yet the government lands like a ton of bricks on our liberties. Yes, it, it wastes no time. And although the law was uh, indeed the brainchild of the conservative government, it must be said uh, in a question of fairness that it had bipartisan support. Ah. Wilfrid Laurier, then opposition leader and, of course, 
former Liberal Prime Minister, endorsed it without any qualms or reservation. And in Laurier's caucus, there was a now uh, unknown Liberal MP named Edward McDonald who wrote to the Justice Department lawyer who drafted the act and told him, make absolutely sure that you omit no power that the government may need. This from a liberal MP. So really the, the temper of the times was authoritarian and you know, in, in a mood of anxiety. It, it, it really does shed light on that reality. I think it speaks very eloquently to the spirit of the times, the, 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 the fact that people were afraid. They were afraid of, of what was waiting for them in terms of, of the front, but they were also concerned about things here at home. Now, I, I wanted to simply say that we're talking about the suspension of habeas corpus. Canada had been... Um, in that situation, I did a little bit of research myself. Uh, during the 1837-38 rebellions, the habeas corpus had been suspended. In the United States, President Lincoln had suspended habeas corpus in the early years of the Civil War. And as you say, it was also the case in Great Britain. What happens when personal freedoms come into conflict with, with concerns for national security? It's never an easy balance to maintain. And Please, let's keep in mind we are, we are talking about a, a government or a tradition of government that really has close to heart uh, civil and individual liberties since the 13th century, the Magna Carta. Uh, you know, the, the Anglo-American uh, tradition, you know, just doesn't just pay lip service to such liberties. You know, it, it, they, they are an, an actual reality. And yet, when something like unprecedented occurs, there is there is this temptation to preserve public order and democracy by by trampling it. Um, this temptation or this uneasy balance is is always present in times of crisis, which by definition are sometimes unforeseen and the effects are are not foreseen uh, that's that's a big big litmus test for uh, for people who have the rule of law now the war measures act will stay uh, on the books you say until 19 until late 1980s we'll come back to that uh, but it, of course it's um, it's it's enacted throughout the first world war did people protest? I mean, okay, so the liberals are in accord, but did people protest this harsh measure? Very muted protest. It's something um, a bit disquieting but sobering to keep in mind that in such times, whether the First World War, the Second World War, or the October 1970 crisis, you know, the three moments where the act was applied in Canada, the overwhelming majority of the population across regions, across languages, across uh, religious denominations, were in support of, uh, of such measures. So there were extremely discreet protests in the First World War, but of course they could not express themselves with complete ease and abandon. <laughs> protests also occurred with a, with a higher frequency in the Second World War, and with a higher note still for the 1970 events. 
Yes, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, what about censorship of newspapers? Did the government uh, censor newspapers? It was, it was a reality in both world wars, although almost, almost not in the 1970 crisis. Apart from official censorship, there is, of course, also the pernicious self-censorship. Ah, yes. The editors and journalists don't want to lend themselves or lend their media or newspaper into trouble, so they tend to be quite reserved in expressing their discontent. And one should not throw a stone at them too harshly, because the entire system, the adjective systemic being in vogue now, the entire system converges towards restricting or trampling civil liberties in such contexts. The judiciary, the police, uh, parliament, executive power, the opinion trend setters, there is not much elbow room for the dissenters. Um, but there was censorship of newspapers in the First World War, and there were newspapers were closed. I always, I'm always amazed that uh, Henri Bourassa, for example, uh, was able to continue publish Le Devoir because he came really close. In the in the two world wars, there was a sort of a cost benefit uh, <laughs> calculation being done by the uh, Ottawa authorities, mm. uh, with the conclusion that shutting Le Devoir would cause more havoc than allowing it to continue to voice slightly heterodox opinions. However, newspapers who had less public clout, such as many newspapers written in, um, in non-French, non-English languages, were unceremoniously just simply cancelled. Uh, Xavier, am I correct in, in, um, in drawing a, a link also with, with martial law, the imposition of martial law in, in Canada? Or am I wrong here? The, the repression, for example, of the uh, Easter uprising in 1918 in Quebec City, uh, this was a, a bloody, um, a bloody protest in the streets of Quebec City that was harshly suppressed by the Canadian military. Was there a link between that and the War Measures Act? If I remember correctly, but then I'm perhaps on slightly shaky grounds, not being a legal scholar. I think the martial law used to repress the anti-conscription riots was enabled or facilitated by the broader, wider. War Measures Act of August 1914. Because it's important to remember there were also mutinies uh, in parts of Alberta, as I remember, through 1917, 1918. These were the young guys that were stationed uh, in the various barracks across the country uh, who who grew tired of uh, of living under military under military rule and who protested everything from the food to the fact that not everybody was being conscripted. But let, let's move along. The enforcement of the War Measures Act ended with the First World War, but then again was invoked in August 20, on August 25, 1939, a week before Canada declared war on Hitler's Germany. Was the Second World War experience different from the first? In, in a certain sense, it was different in the sense that it was worse. It was better organized. Uh, governments had the experience now of having lived through four or five years of a world war. They knew better how to repress and whom to repress and what was the proper apparatus 
to do it. If we turn back the clock, throughout the First World War, there were massive internments of uh, Canadian residents of Eastern European ancestry due to the fact that they originally came from countries who happened to be at war with Canada in the First World War. People, for instance, of Ukrainian and Croatian and Bulgarian descent. Well, when the Second World War came, you know, uh, po policies and ideas were ready. They, they already, uh, the, the authorities knew that, uh, you know, internment could proceed and how to proceed. Initially, uh, something like 500 or 600 Italian Canadians were, were targeted starting in the summer of 1940 since uh, fascist Italy was at war against Canada. So a list was drawn of possibly, ten conditionally, uh, people of Italian descent who might have friendly acquaintances with the Italian regime. Uh, a, a list on, uh, established on quite shaky grounds, because essentially, if you were a member of the Italian Canadian community, let's say in Toronto or Montreal, and if you had to have any official relationship or dealings with Italian authorities or Italian agencies of any sort, you sort of, you know, were in interaction with fascism, so to speak, which did not make yourself, you know, a, a loud, uh, you know, proponent of the of, of fascism, let alone an enemy of your country of residence. Mm -hmm. Now, this is this is 1940. You're saying with the with the Italians. Um, th of course, this has been a subject of some controversy. Uh, the uh, historians have looked at the list of the Italian Canadians who were uh, arrested and incarcerated, and there's a there's there is room, Xavier, to 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 justify some of those jailings. Is there not? Reasonable discussions can occur. Uh, there are certainly certain were uh, uh, espousers of of fascism. Now let's not forget that uh, up until 1940. Fascism, along with communism and other isms, belong to the spectrum of Canadian public or political opinion, was not in itself, you know, reprehensible, morally perhaps, but certainly not legally. And there is also a big bridge to walk between having fascist opinions and actively aiding the hostile Italian war effort. Yes, of course. Now, there's another big protester at the time, though, and that's Camille Oud, the mayor of Montreal. Oh yes, the I mean the, spe <laughs> the spectacular mayor, spectacular in every in every way. What happened to Camille Oud? H O U D E, Camille Oud. What happened to him? A legendary mayor since the late 1920s. Uh, populist, uh, cl cl close to the common folk, uh, provincially conservative, but not particularly ideologically minded. He um, made a speech in the summer of 1940, warning his compatriots not to submit to what was called then uh, uh, national registration. He, t he told them that registration was but the prelude to conscription, and conscription for the vast majority of French Canadians in the 1940s was the absolute no-no, for many reasons that are 
quite well known the fact that there was no affinity between most French Canadians and Great Britain, little affinity with France as a lay secular republic uh, for all of these reasons. But he, and he refused to retract. And he said defiantly that he knew perfectly well uh, what the consequences of his, you know, prise de parole could be. And well, sure enough, he was uh, incarcerated in uh, Petawawa and then near Fredericton for the whole of four years since he refused to apologize. It is totally remarkable. This is the mayor of Montreal, the duly elected mayor of Montreal. <laughs> yeah, complete, completely. He's not a, he's not a firebrand agitator. You know, uh, Actual political prisoners were, you know, in turn, Adrien Arcan, the yes. our fascist leader, or communist uh, persons in the first year or so of the war, uh, because of the uh, of the fact that the Soviet Union and Germany had made an unholy pact. But you know, Camillien Oud, the mayor of Montreal, for for all his bombast and excess, you know, was a public respected figure who had who had hosted uh, King George VI and Queen Elizabeth uh, <laughs> barely in the spring or summer of 1939. Uh, so, so and, and this gave, you can imagine, an extremely powerful lesson. If the government can take Camillien, they can certainly take the various rank-and-file individuals who might be inclined to voice their protest too, too loudly. That's a, that's a, cynically, that's a very efficient way of proceeding. Strike hard, strike early, and strike high, and the rest will keep in place. I mean, I get the impression that it worked. Again, the government did exercise uh, censorship. And of course, we know we know a lot of the War Measures Act. I think for a lot of Canadians, the War Measures Act is also the justification for the internment of Japanese Canadians. Yes, that's another uh, uh, particularly dark page because after the Pearl Harbor attack of the very late 1941, uh, the presence of Japanese Canadians was viewed with uh, increased hostility, especially by. Uh, ordinary British Colombians, there was also the fact that the presence of the Japanese um, persons in Canada had never been completely, fully embraced as normal and desirable. In the best of cases, reality compels us to say that Canadians of uh, Asian origin were tolerated, but not fully uh, embraced as part of the national community. Suspicion, uh, ethnic prejudices, and unfortunately, a, a list of factors. So the vast majority of the Japanese-Canadian population then lived on the western strip of coast of British Columbia, you know, from uh, Victoria to uh, Prince Rupert and the like, and uh, they were forcibly relocated uh, something like 300 miles away from the coast in the far interior or BC or Alberta. The relocation was not just a geographic move, but it was ac accompanied by the, um, by the taking of their vehicles, uh, homes, shops, fishing boats when, when they were, when they were uh, in, involved in fishing, and with a certain cynicism that the, uh, the seizing of these 
assets was supposed to help pay for their relocation. And we're talking about a population that uh, you know was relocated uh, in case or in fear they would act as a fifth colon and be secretly you know sharing information or assistance with the Japanese armed forces. And no case of the uh, of this uh, nature ever occurred. Absolutely none. Yes. Again, it it speaks to the to the way the War Measures Act can be used to to uh, to justify practically anything the government could do. It's an act that that defies a description, and the fact that it happened in the 20th century and that most of us uh, uh, were completely alive and active at the time when the act was still in the books um, make us make us reflect, and especially ha- happening in a, in a broadly very liberal and civil and tolerant society in the context of the times. It is remarkable. Now, the story doesn't end there. First World War, Second World War, okay, it's the War Measures Act, it's in wartime. The Pierre Trudeau government brought in the War Measures Act on October 15th, 1970, 25 years after the end of the Second World War, and that measure remains controversial today. Why, Xavier, did the Trudeau government bring in the War Measures Act, the heaviest weapon it has in its legislative artillery? Arguments were very heated in October, and December, November and December 1970, and we have to say the argument uh, has not really cooled down or calmed down since. There were some who would, who would argue that given the information available, to the federal cabinet then, and given the sense of urgency and uh, incapacity expressed by the police authorities in Montreal and the government authorities in Quebec City, recourse to the War Measures Act was the only tool available to the Pierre Trudeau government in the context of of these particularly feverish days. Others will say and have said, like Tommy Douglas, who is a famous leader of the New Democratic Party, famous for having said that the government is using a sledgehammer to crack a peanut. Others would have said that existing statutes, uh, normal ones, such as the criminal code, etc., already amply uh, gave the government a margin of maneuver uh, to, to act. It, it must be remembered, and it's, it's, it's per- perfectly forgivable to make the confusion, that the use of, the, of armed forces to uh, assist a government is not the same thing as uh, using the War Measures Act. The government sent armed troops in Quebec the day before the War Measures Act was applied, October, October the 14th, following a formal request of the Quebec government, and that's perfectly standard according, according to the National Defense Act. In other words, Quebec or Montreal could have been swamped with troops and soldiers without the War Measures Act ever having been invoked. But the War Measures Act was invoked to assist police forces who were overwhelmed. Now, why were they overwhelmed? Why ha- hadn't say, ha- hadn't they see the situation coming and growing after seven years of bombing and Front de Libération du Québec activities? 
That's another question. People were jailed, Xavier. Yeah, uh, close to 500 persons, sometimes for a few hours, sometimes for many months. Sometimes they were jailed, free, and re-jailed, just in case. Sometimes you could not really reach the real person, so you, you took his or her children, as was the case of singer Pauline Julien. Uh, the usual suspects, so so to speak, in quotation marks, were jailed. Typically, they were they tended to be r relatively younger, French-speaking, of a left-wing persuasion, progressive-minded, in favor of Quebec independence, but never in favor of the actual violent means, you know, put into place by the Front de Libération du Québec. The rationale behind all these massive arrests of 500 people was to put them all in a safe place uh, so that they could perhaps uh, share some information. But extremely little valuable information was gleaned from these 500 persons who had not taken part in, in the uh, kidnappings or other misdeeds, which, however, should not be banalized. Xavier, you said at the beginning, during the First World War and the Second World War, there were hardly any protests, in part because people were intimidated, but also because the population seemed to be in agreement with the government. It seems as though it was the same case in 1970. Very largely speaking, and as it happens, uh, we, we tend to keep in mind a sort of uh, uh, the, the, prote the protesters that manifested themselves in 1970 and afterwards are quite known to us. Tommy Douglas, as mentioned. Also Robert Stanfield, who was like a dilly-dallying with the issue, and many progressive intellectuals from English and French Canada uh, alike from 1970 to the present. But uh, on the, in, in the reality of things, many scientific, reliable opinion polls were done throughout the fall and early winter of 1971, um, showing upwards of 85% of Canadians approving the War Measures Act and its consequences. And that includes Quebecers and Francophones, the elderly, the young bearded, but smokers, <laughs> when, you, when you have 87% of a population expressing support in a scientific Gallup poll, two or three months after the events, you know, when the, the worst of the dust has settled and when the mass imprisonments and 30,000 house seizures have become known and reported, it tells us something about us collectively. There is no f pointing of fingers here. In the face of public crisis, public disorder, or war, of course, a sort of democratic, normal, if not desirable, reflex is to put the lid on things harshly. It certainly, again, I say it, it, it sheds light on our political culture, that there is, there is somewhere in our, our collective political mind a willingness to to support the authoritarian our authoritarian tendencies that there there, there is there is an important aspect of of authoritarianism in our political culture yes it, it's it's present it's hard to um, integrate the conception that uh, preserving individual liberties of course uh, 
means also preserving the individual liberties of people we completely uh, disapprove of, uh, people that we are suspicious of, people that we actively dislike, but that nevertheless, when they sort of comply with the laws, until proven proven wrong, you you have to leave them their their, their basic rights. Mm, no, that's that's difficult. Okay, so Pierre Trudeau, who brings in the War Measures Act in 1970, uh, 11 years later, spearheads the movement to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which are fairly incompatible with the War Measures Act, uh, but things are left as such. It's the Mulroney government who changes the War Measures Act in 1988. Well, what exactly did the Mulroney government do? The uh, Mulroney government uh, was certainly con conservative in the general sense of the term, but what al was also quite um, concerned about individual rights and freedom, not only in Canada, but abroad, as we have seen with the South African and apartheid situation. So his uh, Solicitor General Perrin Beatty submitted the Canadian Emergencies Act in 1987-1988 to get rid once and for all of the War Measures Act. It is essentially an act that gives the government very wide-ranging powers, as the title indicates, in case of emergency. But contrary to the previous War Measures Act, it contains uh, very, very strict uh, internal limitations. There is, among other things, a long preamble stating clearly that the Act does not give unfettered authority to the authorities, and that it will respect all, uh, all normally known human rights and the Charter of Rights and Freedom, and so on. As it happens, the Act has never been invoked, not even in the very recent COVID crisis. Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. It's important to, to underline here that although you and uh, your colleague, Mélanie Morin-Pelletier, have put together a small book called Lost Liberties, the War Measures Act, this is... This is an exhibit at a museum. What prompted you to uh, conceive of, of, of this exhibit? Many uh, events in uh, Canadian history, especially what we would call the dark chapters, are now better known and better, more talked about than they were, let's say, 30 years ago. Uh, it's, there is a general tendency to open the entire history album of Canadian history including the warts or the unpalatable parts. So in this general trend, the War Measures Act and its impact was a worthy topic of exploration. But adding something more, there, there has been an uh, increased scholarly and popular interest into many of the individual topics and issues that we address in this exhibition, but we realized that they had never been tied together with this metallic thread that is the War Measures Act. For instance, uh, scholars or citizens who are fascinated by the October 1970 crisis seldom link it to the massive Japanese force relocation of the Second World War. Or uh, Canadians of Ukrainian ancestry who have been, you know, uh, uh, press, pressing 
the Canadian population and government since the 1980s to acknowledge publicly the reality of the eight or nine thousand people being interned of Eastern general Eastern European origin in the First World War, uh, don't always make the connection with the October 1970 case, etc. So we found it was like worthy to to connect these elements together. The ambition, of course, was to take advantage, so to say, of the 50th anniversary of the uh, October October 1970 crisis. Due to the pandemic, the exhibition could not open as planned in October 2020, but we, we kept at it and we hope that it, it remains relevant despite the fact that it no, no longer coincidentally uh, matches with an anniversary. For the people who are lucky enough to travel to Gatineau to the Canadian Museum of History, what kind of artifacts uh, would they be seeing? The artifacts that we have uh, we have chosen are not very numerous due to the due to the very nature of the topic. You know, when you are when you are interned, when you when you have to when to forcibly travel, when you are dispossessed, when you are seized, it is not the time where you you can create a, a work of art at your leisure in your atelier. Nevertheless, um, we we were fortunate to f to find objects, for instance, uh, craft objects made by Ukrainian Canadian internees in the First World War. You know, they spent four or five years in camp. They had ample time in their free evening if they were artistically inclined or able to do boats in bottles or very various carvings and all that we also show archaeological artifacts it deserves to be said that the internment internment camp of uh, ukrainian and other european persons in the 1914 and 1920 period the camps were literally physically bulldozed in the 1920s by the Ottawa government to make sure that no material trace subsisted. But the um, Canadian First World War Internment Recognition Fund um, asked an, a, an archaeologist in the last years to um, exhumate one or, or two of these camps in British Columbia. And sure enough, uh, she came out with many objects of daily life, uh, you know, pieces of clothing or smoking pipes or razor blades and whatnot, just showing that actual normal people tried to live a life there. And we show, we show a few of these. And also drawings from internees of the um, Second World War, you know, some actual documents we have like for instance a notebook used by the lawyer for the quebec government during the negotiations with the flq you know completely full of info and arrows and and all that things that give a certain 3d reality and we try to supplement with lots of audio visual um, testimonies and images to try to make this historical reality incarnated in actual persons. Well, I can't wait to go see it. Now, let's talk again uh, about about the governments that invoked these laws. How are we to think about these governments, Xavier? Uh, 50 years in terms of uh, the War Measures Act in 1970, 
uh, over 100 years when it comes to the First World War. How, how are we to judge the governments who invoke these laws today? I think we, I think we are to judge with modesty, modesty and prudence, and not our contemporary arrogance. I think it is legitimate to be outraged today, you and I and our listeners, of what happened. This is re revolting. Uh, the fact that uh, eight or nine thousand people of uh, Eastern European origin had to spend four or five years in camps just due to their national origin. The fact that 20,000 and more Japanese Canadians had to be re relocated because of their ancestry, although they often could not speak the Japanese language themselves and had never set foot in Japan, etc., etc. Okay, this is offensive to us, and rightly so. It is right that we ask our questions armed with our contemporary mindset. And it is right that we try to expose and display reality and facts as unpleasant and, and harsh as they were. But the exhibition tried to, tries to make a point, however, in each of the three historical sections to put ourselves, to put visitors in the shoes of the actors of the time, whether they were the police forces, uh, judges, government authorities, or Jack and Jill of the public opinion. You know, what tools did they possess? What knowledge did they have of the situation? You know, let's put ourselves in in the, in in these shoes before uh, preferring too hasty judgments. Um, v visitors, citizens, historians may judge, and and that's that's fair. But as uh, museum curators, we were content in presenting as broad as accurately as possible the situation, trying to show the complexity. It, it is it is not sidestepping from a judgment. It is just to to refrain from being too hasty. The job of historians is to explain and to explain in context without without justifying. No, ex exactly as the old Romans said, "Res ipsa loquitur." I think things speak for themselves. But that's exactly the point. We would like to let things speak for themselves. And let's not forget that in 2070, uh, perhaps our successors will judge us today, perhaps in a less rosy way than we like to think of ourselves. Well, okay, so you're bringing up the COVID pandemic again. What, what is your thinking here? Have we learned anything from our experience with the War Measures Act? We are, you could argue today, we are at war with with a virus. We have we have allowed ourselves to diminish our liberties. Uh, how do you link the War Measures Act with the COVID experience? I think the, the link has to be established. Again, it has to be drawn with prudence. We're not talking about a military crisis or a, or a terrorism crisis. But nevertheless, the, par the parallel or the analogy, uh, as you suggested, just simply has to be drawn. It's unprecedented 
it's a it's a crisis. The government is telling us to confine. The government is telling us not to not to associate with each other, not to associate with our families, to limit our numbers. I mean, this is a massive intrusion in our private lives. I mean, I don't think that the the Borden government or the King government in the Second World War or the Trudeau government would have ever insisted on something like that. Our governments today have gone much further. I think so, and the interprovincial. Um, uh, transportation has has often been forbidden and intra-provincial um, transportation for the first time since confederation and uh, the, the, we, we try not to editorialize the exhibition does address this and tries to show the proverbial two sides of the coin we have the current prime minister who in good faith not to be questioned with the information at their disposal, not to be questioned, is on record as saying, and we quote him in the exhibition, something like, these are extraordinary times calling for extraordinary measures. Prime Minister Borden and King and Pierre Trudeau in 1970 said almost exactly to a T the same, the same thing. Um, let, let our successors be the judge. Yes. Well, it's a, it's a remarkable exhibit, uh, Xavier, and uh, the, the ability you have to, to draw parallels between past experiences and, and what we live with today is, is, is admirable, and I thank you very much for sharing your ideas with us. I'm all blushing with your compliments. Thanks for listening, Patrice. <laughs> speaking with Xavier Gilina, the co-curator with Mélanie Morin-Pelletier of Lost Liberties, the War Measures Act, an exhibit at the Canadian Museum of History. They are both the authors of a book with the same title, Lost Liberties, published by the Canadian Museum of History. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners that this podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, whose annual membership makes everything we do possible. Thank you. Thanks also to our growing list of sponsors, including the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. There's a way for you, the listener, to support this podcast. Please go to Champlain Society to make a quick donation. The Champlain Society is a registered charity and will provide you with a tax receipt for any donation over $20. Any support goes a long way as the Champlain Society receives no government support for its operations which always surprises people. And don't forget to support this podcast by telling all your friends in whatever way you prefer. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded as the Omicron virus is ruining our lives on December 21st, 2021, by our producer, Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.